This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 53 of Here's How. The UK government has announced that they will be triggering Article 50 within the next two months. But do they have a coherent plan? Do they have a plan at all? Let's hear from a leading Brexit supporter. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. I'm closing down the Something for Nothing Society. This is Peter Lilly. He was the minister responsible for social welfare in Margaret Thatcher and John Major's cabinets. Tougher rules affecting so-called New Age travellers. Most people were as sickened as I was by the sight of these spongers descending like locusts, demanding benefits with menaces. We are not in the business... This speech is at the 1992 Conservative Party conference. I've got a little list of benefit offenders who I'll soon be rooting out and who never would be missed. They never would be missed. There's those who make up bogus claims in half a dozen names and councillors who draw the dole to run left-wing campaigns. He remained an MP after Tony Blair came to power and he supported the Leave campaign in last year's Brexit vote. They never would be missed. They never would be missed. There's young ladies who get pregnant just to jump the housing queue. And dads who won't support the kids of the ladies they have kissed. (laughs) And I haven't even mentioned all those sponging socialists. I've got them on my list. And there's none of them be missed. There's none of them be missed. The Here's How podcast is back for 2017, and my first guest will be talking about the implications of Brexit for the UK and for Ireland. If you like the Here's How podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most of all, make your views heard. Call us on 076 603 5060. Peter Lilly is the MP for Hitchin and Harpenden in the UK Parliament. He was a Cabinet Minister for seven years under Margaret Thatcher and John Major. He left the Cabinet in 1997 and he's been an MP ever since. And he was a vocal supporter of the Leave side in the UK Brexit referendum. Um, Peter, how is Brexit going for you? It's going well, I think. The Prime Minister's speech this week uh, was very well received both here and uh, abroad. It was more explicit, more clear-cut, and very positive than people had expected. And uh, that ended a lot of uncertainty and gave a very clear sense of direction to which um, 
people in business and industry have responded well. Um, Faisal Islam, the Sky News reporter, reported a source on the morning of the vote, uh, a leave source saying there is no plan. He told me this. He said, I said, so where's the plan? Can we see the Brexit plan? There is no plan. The leave campaign don't have a post-Brexit plan. And, and he was pointing over there to where the vote leave HQ was. And he, then he pointed over there and he said, number 10 should have had a, a plan. No, it sounds like I'm making that up. That literally happened. Uh, was that true then? Is it true now? I don't think it was true then. Of course, the Leave campaign were not the government. The government were on the other side. The Leave campaign, therefore, didn't, uh, went into position to make promises uh, specifically as to what we would do once we regained powers over our laws, our money and our borders and our trade. Uh, now, the government has accepted the decision of the British people, they are able to flesh out all the sort of things they will do once we've got those powers back. And uh, also the particular things they'll rule out in the course of any negotiations with the EU. Would you accept that um, there's a lot of uncertainty, nobody really knows what's going to happen and that can be damaging? Yes, uh, we've got a bit of a clearer idea now because of what Prime Minister said. But clearly, until the negotiations are complete, uh, no one will know for sure the arrangements that we'll have for trading with and cooperating with the rest of Europe uh, after the end of two years. And that's why I would like to see the process shortened if possible. Okay. Um, commentators in Ireland, including um, Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Fáil, have made comments to the effect that you haven't a clue what you're doing. Um and just one issue, for example, your parliamentary colleague, um, the UK Farms Minister, George Eustace, he said in a speech at the Farmers Club in Westminster that, uh, and I quote, we think we can get back the devolved powers for farming. That's to say, to move powers that the Scottish and Northern Irish and uh, Welsh assemblies have over farming, move that back to Westminster. How do you think that'll play in Holyrood? I don't think that's what he said. He said that the powers that have essentially been transferred to Brussels will come back. And at present, they're handle of Brussels, even though farming as an issue, theoretically, is a devolved responsibility. Mm -hmm. But he was making the point, or I didn't actually hear that speech, but other ministers, including the Prime Minister, have made the point that it will be important that we have a single market for the United Kingdom in agricultural products and so on. Uh, and so when these powers come back from Brussels to the UK, they will be operated in a way that ensures we have a single market for agriculture and don't have sort of borders between England, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. Sure, but you can see it's a bit of a sticky wicket because as it stands, all agriculture powers that the UK have are devolved to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, they're going to say, well, if Brussels is giving up these powers, as happens with Brexit, um, they should be staying with us in uh, in the uh, devolved parliaments. Um, and it sounds like something that uh, the SNP, it's a stick that uh, they could beat Westminster with and uh, say that they're uh, essentially losing out on what's rightfully theirs. Well, they'll try making that, but it comes sounds a bit rich when they do because they don't want these powers back. They've been saying that we shouldn't leave. We should leave these powers in Brussels. Uh, so for them to suddenly say, oh, uh, actually, we really did want them back, and we want them so desperately they've got to be operated at Holyrood 
or Belfast or uh, Cardiff and not in, uh, uh, in whatever way the United Kingdom decides uh, will ensure a single market. And that may involve some delegation of powers to the devolved regions. But as long as we continue to have a, a single market, an internal market, in agricultural products. Uh, but you, you take the point that this wasn't something that was fleshed out before the referendum. It does seem like something that's being made up as it goes along. And uh, uh, No, I don't take that point at all, actually. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's the sort of thing that was banded around during the referendum campaign. The referendum campaign's over. Uh, and it's, there's not much point in refighting the referendum campaign now. We fought the referendum campaign to get powers back. Uh, during the referendum campaign, those who were campaigning to remain speculated in all sorts of terrible ways those powers might be used if we got them back. The British people said, no, actually, we'll be in charge and we use those powers in a sensible way. Uh, and that's why we voted to leave. One of the issues that's certain to come up is um, especially interest, of interest to people on both sides of the border in Ireland is the border in Ireland. It's 500 kilometres long. It goes through uh, boreens and mountains. It crosses people's farms and their front gardens. In some cases, it goes between their living rooms and their bedrooms. Are we going to have a hard border? I hope not. I very much not. We certainly won't as far as free movement of people is concerned. We've had free movement of people ever since the 1920s, and we will continue to after we've left. People say, oh, but you want to take back control of uh, your borders for the purpose of immigration. That's true, but the control will not be exercised at the border. We, will, we have already uh, visa-free travel with 56 countries throughout the world. And I'm absolutely certain uh, that Ireland will continue with visa-free travel. The way we will control uh, people coming to work in the United Kingdom will be at the workplace. Anyone working will have to have a national insurance number and the employer will have to ensure that is so. Uh, and so it's when you apply for a national insurance number that you're, you know, if you're not a British resident and have right to uh, live in the UK, that's where the controls will be exercised. Sure. Is that any There's a lot of mis now? misunderstandings that it... Pardon? Is that any different to the situation now? Uh, well, that's not any different from the situation for non-EU residents, but uh, non-EU citizens. But at present, EU citizens can just automatically get a national insurance number. Mm -hmm. uh, in future, if they want to work in the UK, they will have to be subject to the same uh, terms and conditions as people from the rest of the world, I hope, uh, who want national insurance numbers and want, want the right to work. Okay, and do you uh, foresee any problem with perhaps a farmer who wants to sell a few cattle to his neighbour who happens to be on the other side of the border? Well, I used to be the Minister for um, Customs and Excise, and we had problems then at the border because of different VAT rights, uh, rates. And if you remember, there was what was called the carousel uh, for, for fraudulent activity where uh, cattle were driven across the border and got one rate and then back and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, we've had to tackle that sort of problem in the past and we may have to tackle that sort of problem in the future if the EU uh, insists on uh, imposing tariffs on our goods because then we would naturally reciprocate and impose the same tariffs on their goods. And that would create issues on the border, but issues we've dealt with before and I hope 
with the cooperation of the Irish government, we will minimise. We, we don't want to create a fuss for farmers or anyone like that. What we want to stop is people, sort of, if we've got a 10% tax, as the uh, EU currently has on car imports, we don't want to see Germany just simply rooting all its car imports in via the Irish border. And okay. We can easily stop that without creating uh, merry uh, great problems for Irish farmers. Okay, to- talking about merry great problems, um, David Davis is your Minister for Exiting the European Union, which is an interesting title. Um, but looking back at some tweets that he sent uh, just in the days after the referendum, and this is a direct quote from his Twitter account, he said, the first calling point of the UK's negotiator immediately after Brexit will not be Brussels, it will be Berlin to strike a deal. Post-Brexit, a UK-German deal would include free access for their cars and industrial goods in exchange for a deal on everything else. Similar deals would be reached with other key EU nations. And he goes on to talk about France exporting uh, wine with a special deal in Italy for fashion, getting a deal for Italy and its fashion products. That's nonsense on stilts, isn't it? No. He's he's Uh, entirely wrong to suggest that the UK could do uh, individual deals with individual EU countries. They wouldn't be individual deals, but we... He, he couldn't do to, a deal ha, with No, hang, hang on. If you want me to answer your questions... Go ahead. Let me. Uh, uh, we, want, we wouldn't actually do a specifically different deal with uh, Germany than with France. But what he was saying is that Germany has a great interest in exporting cars. Mm-hmm. We will want to sort of leverage that. A fifth of all German cars come to the United Kingdom. A million German car workers, uh, people in the car industry are dependent on their jobs for, on the British market. We will say, please, Germany, if you want that to continue, make sure that you put your weight behind a free trade deal. Go to France and say, your wine comes in duty-free to the present. Do you really want to see tariffs imposed on that at precisely the time we will be able to negotiate free trade agreements with Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, reducing the tariffs on their wine? Mm-hmm. Uh, and thereby... Uh, as it were, mobilizing the support of the industries which export to our market in those countries to get their governments to support the idea of a free trade agreement uh, and put pressure on the Commission, which is less enthusiastic, to get such an agreement. So that's, I'm that's, probably a less thing. that's a reasonable thing to do, but he, he specifically made a comment about making individual deals with individual uh, well, EU uh, countries. That's impossible. If, if you're saying he was tweeting, I mean, tweets are notoriously shorthand. And uh, I shouldn't try to sort of prove he said something silly. He's not a silly man. Uh, He may use shorthand when using tweets, as people do. But uh, what he said was perfectly sensible. The the thrust of what he said was perfectly sensible. I'll I'll put a link for the readers, for the listeners to read the, the tweets themselves so they can make up their own minds. But you accept that EU law makes it absolutely impossible for the UK to make individual deals with individual countries. Individual trade deals, correct. You can, however, reach an agreement. Hang on, you can reach an agreement with the government that they will support a deal. Which would be EU-wide. Of course it would be EU-wide, yes. Okay. You have said, and one reason that I wanted to talk to you specifically is because I think you've been frank when perhaps other people uh, have not been quite so frank in saying that it is possible that when the EU, when, excuse me, when the UK leaves the EU, it could 
revert to purely what what's called WTO. WTO is the World Trade Organization. It could revert to just WTO trading rules. But given the two-year clock on negotiations, would you accept that there's an element of uh, the UK jumping off the cliff and negotiating the price of the parachute as they're uh, sailing down? I don't understand that analogy. Well, well, there, 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 but you are correct. You are correct. I think it is quite conceivable, very conceivable, that the European Union may refuse a trade deal with us. If they, their prime interest is the economic well-being of their people, people of Ireland, Germany, France and so on, they will negotiate a free trade deal because it's in both our interests and it's specifically in their interests because they... Britain is the largest single market for the rest of Europe, and particularly the largest single market for Ireland. And uh, therefore, if if their primary interest is the economic well-being of their people, they'll negotiate a free trade deal. However, if they put a political criterion above that, namely that they must deter other people from following our example, uh, they will refuse a trade deal, in which case we will trade on most favoured nation terms uh, under the World Trade Organization rules. I want to get to the WTO in a moment, but you said that there were essentially two motivators. One was uh, perhaps punishing, as you put it, the UK. The other was just uh, economic self-interest. There is a third possibility, and I, I think perhaps some UK politicians might be deaf to it. And, and the the essentially the important point of it is WhatsApp and maybe also Facebook. That there are many people, especially from Eastern Europe who live in the UK and emigrating these days is not the same as emigrating 20 or 30 years ago. They're in daily contact with their uh, friends, colleagues, sometimes boyfriends, girlfriends and, and so forth. When, and particularly conservative MPs have a habit of saying things that can sound quite hostile to EU immigrants within the UK for example, what? Uh, I'm not going to go into specific examples. Although you I'm... haven't got examples. Don't don't make blanket accusations. I, 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 I know of no none of my colleagues who said anything hostile about Eastern Europeans. I and all my colleagues on the Leave side have been very clear. We want to give an assurance as soon as possible, and I personally would do so unilaterally, and many of my colleagues would agree, to all European citizens who are here at present in the UK exercising the right to work under the EU treaties, that their position will be protected once we leave. We'll have different rules for people who come in future, mm-hmm. but we want to them. And I've had no negative comments from my colleagues about them. Okay, I, I think probably... And you haven't been able to give any examples. It's true, I didn't research them, but I'll see if I can get some uh, for the notes of this podcast. But I think you're being quite astute in saying that though that, that guarantee should be given unilaterally, but your Prime Minister has, hasn't has done that and has quite markedly said that there's kind of some sort of trade-off between the uh, people working from perhaps Eastern Europe in the UK and the, uh, for example, uh, large number of um, British residents of Spain and France. I think you have a holiday home yourself in France. And that, can you see how that would rankle with people and perhaps create an atmosphere whereby politicians, Eastern European politicians in particular, who would be more than happy to cut you a good deal might come under political pressure at home to say, we're feeling negative vibes from the UK. We don't want our politicians to be so generous to them. On the contrary. I, I, as I said, I, I would be happy to do it unilaterally and I've 
express that view. But um, Theresa May has said uh, she wants to see similar assurances given for British citizens. But she invited the European Council, all the leaders of governments, to give those mutual assurances to each other uh, that we're not going to expel uh, EU citizens from Britain and that EU countries are not going to expel British citizens from the EU. Mm-hmm. We all know that, that no, no country is going to expel hundreds of thousands of people. It would be a wicked thing to do. Uh, and uh, we wouldn't retaliate even if they expelled Brit- British people. But nonetheless, it would be a good thing if we could have that early assurance. Mm-hmm. Most of the countries of Europe, I understand, wanted to give that assurance, including Eastern European countries. Mrs. Merkel said, no, we must stick rigidly to the doctrine, which comes from nowhere, it's not in any treaty, that there can be no negotiation before Article 50 is uh, triggered, and then everything must be negotiated before anything can be agreed. So it is sad that that attitude has been taken, and that the humane and sensible approach has been vetoed by the German government and other governments have supinely accepted it. I, I actually agree with you. I think that you're entirely correct on that. But um, do you think that once Article uh, 50 is triggered, there will be uh, French elections relatively soon, and then I think German elections come after that? Do you think that Angela Merkel might be washing her hair on quite a few nights and will run out the clock on negotiations to put pressure on the UK? She may. Uh, if they don't negotiate in good faith, that will be... Well, I don't see what the elections have got to do with that. But, well, it's an excuse to uh, delay the negotiations. Uh, yes, well, maybe. And I, I think uh, that we should uh, read very carefully Article 50 and invoke the terms of Article 50. And Article 50 says, the Union shall negotiate and conclude an agreement with the departing state uh, within the framework of, an, of uh, its future relationship mm-hmm. with now you can only negotiate everything else within that framework therefore we must know that framework to start off with at least an outline we must know is it going to be a free trade agreement or is it going to be uh, most favoured nation tariffs mm-hmm. that, that uh, means they're going to have no barrows but yeah, well that's what WTO means uh, most favoured nation tariffs um, uh, and we just need to know that at the beginning uh, and if they refuse that at the beginning, if you refuse to uh, respond to that uh, question, which is implicit in Article 50, then uh, you know it will be hard to say that they're negotiating good faith. The issue will come up in their elections. They will suddenly find that a million German car workers are saying, what, you're refusing to promise a free trade agreement to the Brits? That means that our cars will suffer tariffs. Uh, the wine growers in France, the, uh, all the uh, producers of luxury goods in France that come to the UK uh, will start being worried. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we get these issues up front, out in public, before the election, so that the democratic process is brought to bear in Europe and their governments don't uh, conspire to do something which their public would not like. Mm-hmm. Um, you were elected, as you had been t- elected many times before, you were elected in 2015. And you were elected on the election manifesto of David Cameron and George Osborne was the uh, the UK finance minister after that election. And he promised to fulfil an election manifesto commitment, which was to eliminate the UK government's deficit by 2020. Is the government pursuing that? No. Um, Why not? 
because it said following the uh, the Brexit decision, uh, the changing exchange rate, the uncertainty that it involved, uh, it would be uh, better to have flexibility than to stick to that uh, that target. That was what Philip Hammond announced in the autumn statement. Philip Hammond is now uh, Theresa May, the new Prime Minister's Finance Minister. Um, I want to look a little bit, just to conclude, at um, the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization. It's not something that hits the headlines, certainly not in Ireland very often, but it's essentially the agreement under which every country that isn't in the EU or isn't in NAFTA or isn't in some other agreement, it's kind of the baseline. You have said, and I think you've been very upfront, that if all else fails, you're happy for the UK to trade with the EU under the WTO. Um, do you think that that would happen easily? Would that be something easy to achieve? Well, that achieves itself. If there's no agreement, that's what happens. We would uh, trade under World Trade Organization rules under, on most favoured nation terms mm -hmm. with uh, the rest of the EU, as we do already with America. Canada, That's with quite like low Japan, tariffs, yeah? Russia. Uh, the average tariff with the EU is 4%, about 4%. Uh, I think you made the point in the House of Commons that, uh, okay, 4%, it's not a, a zero, it's not tariff-free, but it's less, for example, than an exporter might expect currency to uh, fluctuate by. So it's not an enormous deal. But well, and, and we've seen a 15% improvement in our competitiveness because of the exchange rate movement uh, over the, the last year. Which means by 15%. Yes, yes. exactly. And, and, so, and so a 4% so tariff than, or whatever is, is, is absorbed and then some by that. For most people. Okay. But that's an average, of course. For some it's higher, for some it's lower. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, you might be more expert on this than me, but as I understand it, as well as being part of the WTO in its part of the EU, the UK is a member of the WTO uh, in its own right. That's correct. We pay our sub every year, about £5 million. Uh, sounds like a, a bargain. But as well as the tariffs, there are lots of other non-tariff agreements, and there's what's called a schedule. And although the UK is, par is a member of the WTO in its own right, it operates under the EU schedule. And one example that I found was, for example, uh, New Zealand exports uh, a lot of sheep meat, uh, mutton, uh, and they're allowed 230,000 tonnes of sheep exported to the EU uh, each year without tariff. And then after that, there's a tariff. Other countries don't get that. Can you see how that gets a bit sticky if uh, New Zealand says, hang on a second, we don't want our quota divided up very rigidly. That means there's negotiation to be done about the non-tariff aspects of the WTO, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, that's called a tariff quota. As it so happens, uh, the New Zealanders only export three quarters of the maximum they're allowed to export at present. Mm -hmm. So it ought to be able to uh, both, you know, there's leeway already. Mm -hmm. But there are other commodities where that isn't the case uh, and where we will have to reach an agreement with the countries uh, who have such tariff quotas, i.e quotas that they're allowed to export, import at a low tariff, uh, that should be quite easy uh, mm -hmm. in general um, because we're not a protectionist country. We're not going to be wanting to impose severe limits on them. It may be more difficult for the EU because the EU, if it's got an agreement to, uh, 
to allowing a quarter of a million tons, mm-hmm. um, has to seek permission to change that even if we've left. Mm-hmm. So they would still have to import that same total even though most of it was actually coming to the UK. Well, they would have to accept it if it was exported. But the, yeah, yeah, uh, or the, until they change. Sure. Thing and, but it is the case, as I understand it, that the schedule, that's to say the list of all these uh, exceptions and the, the precise way trade runs from each country to each country, and there's 160 members, so that's an awful lot of bilateral relationships. You need unanimous agreement uh, to set the schedule um, for future trade deals with the UK within the WTO? No, no. What happens is you post your schedule, mm-hmm. and our schedule initially would be the, exactly the same as uh, the schedules of the uh, uh, EU. Mm-hmm. So we'll post the same quotas, the same uh, tariffs. Um, and then other countries can object to that and lodge an objection. Mm-hmm. Their objection it's not like in the EU where you say, oh, they haven't obeyed the rules. That's not enough. You have to show, A, that the schedule doesn't obey the rules, and B, that it harms you, the objecting country. So somebody like Brazil, for example, could say, hang on, we want to export to the UK on more favourable levels in the way that New Zealand does, and we're going to hold up this agreement. No, they, they, they could only, only if, if the change they could show had harmed them, if we had for example, not given them any quota. Nevertheless, sure it wouldn't be the case. But if if we'd done something like that, they they could then complain. It would go to uh, a uh, dispute resolution uh, procedure within the WTO, which might take a couple of years. But meanwhile, trade would go on. There is sometimes a suggestion that until 160 countries have agreed that schedule, no trade takes place. Okay, so, so what case. you're saying is... So is everybody that trades on, on that schedule. Only those who can claim that they've been damaged by the schedule, which would be quite hard because, except in the case of these tariff quotas, it would be exactly the same tariff as was operating previously. Uh, and we will probably be quite uh, generous as far as the, uh, shed, uh, the tariff quotas are concerned. It will be the remaining EU that will face the criticisms if they try and reduce their their uh, quotas to allow for our departure, they may be then subject to complaints from Brazil or wherever. Nevertheless, there is an opportunity for somebody who wants to make trouble to make trouble, and people can let things go through very easily on the nod, or they can object to every dot and comma. Oh, indeed. I mean, at any one moment, there'll be uh, quite a number of these uh, complaints going on, as there are present of people complaining about the w, uh, the EU's external tariff and arrangements, and uh, they have to be resolved. Mm-hmm. That's and what the WTO is for. It's for trying to ensure that disputes are resolved, that we don't have tariff wars, that people can't discriminate against different countries on political grounds, and that the maximum tariffs, the most favored, you know, everybody gets the most favored nation tariff, or they have a free trade deal and they have no tariffs. Roberto Azevedo, the WTO Director General, said he expected talks to be long and difficult. And he said, we haven't had any discussions about the process. We don't know what the process would be. We do know it would be a very unusual situation. Do you think... He said that during the referendum campaign, when most uh, leaders of most um, international non-elected organizations were wheeled out by the British government to say unhelpful things. Since then... He's effectively resiled from that. 
and said that he would do all in his power to expedite the process and make sure it happens smoothly and amicably. And uh, he seems to be extremely cooperative. T- taking everything in the round, do you think that the UK will be better off economically for being out of the EU? Yes, it will. We've now had uh, figures from the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is the independent body that prepares uh, forecasts of the government's expenditure before it prepares a budget. And that's calculated that when we leave, the net saving to the British taxpayer from our contribution to the EU will be £13 billion. That's £250 million a week. Not the great figure of £350 million. £250 million a week. So every week we delay a deal costs us £250 million. So, so, so if, if, that was, if that's the case, um, Peter Lilly, why then abandon George Osborne and David Cameron's commitment to eliminate the deficit by 2020 if you're going to be swimming in money? Well, it's not swimming in money. £13 billion is not the biggest sum we've ever thought of because our deficit is far larger than that. But it will help reduce the deficit, and that's a good thing. But, but the, the deficit was planned to go to zero by 2020. Surely you should be able to do that even sooner. Well, uh, maybe you're right. Peter Lilly, the British Conservative MP for uh, Hitchin and Harpenden, thank you very much for talking to me. A pleasure. Thank you. Make your view heard. Dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. Peter Lilly sort of caught me out there when I couldn't come up with an example off the top of my head of anything hostile said by his party colleagues about immigrants. I thought that was so obvious I missed it in my research. It doesn't take more than a few seconds on Google to find many examples of this, so I'll link to a list, but just to give three examples. All sources for this are in the show notes on the webpage, along with sources for other things I was talking about during the interview. And for example, and I'm just choosing things here from senior Conservative Party MPs, Amber Rudd, the UK Home Secretary, was criticised by her own brother. He said that she was denigrating British workers when she published what she called plans to name and shame employers who employed immigrants. Liam Fox, the Minister for International Trade, said... People who come to the country and consume the wealth of the country without ever having created anything are a different kettle of fish. I think it's about getting control of migration. And former UK Prime Minister David Cameron condemned Labour Party figures for meeting what he called a bunch of migrants, and he described refugees as a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean. That's almost the end of episode 53 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 27th of January 2017. If you can think of a topic that should be covered in the next show, or you want to suggest someone to include, and that could be yourself, then let me know. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and give it a rating, or even write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook. Please follow the podcast on Twitter, at Here's How Podcast and follow Peter Lilly at Lilly Peter, And you can subscribe to the podcast so new shows automatically come up in your podcast feed. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast app or software. If you don't know how to do any of that, there's full instructions 
recommendations for podcast software, and contact details for the show, all at www.hereshow.ie. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.